Right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're looking at verses 23 to 28 this morning. And this will be the last uh, part of this message about pulling back the curtain of the old and the new. It kind of finishes up in chapter 9, and, uh, but significant before we get into chapter 10, 11, and then through the end of the book where it becomes more practical in its, um, the nature of Hebrews after the doctrine is laid, the practice happens, and that's what many epistles do for us. But today we're going to look at the, really the necessity and the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. Now, just by way of reminder, again, I, I just want to let you uh, know that the, the new covenant that I've been talking about offers a superlative plan for the salvation of Humanity. In other words, there is no greater plan. There's no other plan that could replace it. And if you remember, the basic idea of a covenant is a relationship between God and man. How can a sinful man have a relationship with a holy and just God and escape his judgment? That is what the, the question really Hebrews is answering to the to the audience that is listening, and he's. He's saying it over and over again in different ways so that people can get it. Remember, the old covenant, again, the first covenant, was dependent on man's keeping the law. As soon as that person broke the law, that covenant became ineffective, and their access to God was actually broken and shut down. They couldn't get to God. The new covenant, or the second covenant, the basic meaning is that because Jesus inaugurated this new covenant with his blood, and all covenants in Scripture are inaugurated with blood, ratified with blood, instituted with blood, that all those who are called by the gospel and receive Jesus as their substitute sacrifice, in other words, Jesus died in your place, you become to realize that, and then, as you realize that he died in your place, you have access to God and fellowship with him forever. Yes, we are still in imperfect uh, bodies, in an imperfect environment, but someday we will be ushered into heaven, have resurrected bodies, and enjoy all the promises that God has promised in the Word of God. So, really, in this section that I'm looking at this morning, of this great epistle of Hebrews, we are addressing the importance of bloodshedding, which once again highlights the superiority and necessity of the sacrifice of Christ, that blood is used to cleanse everything unclean in the Old Testament, making things clean and people clean. But when it comes to remitting sin... There's no remission apart from blood shedding. Look at chapter 9, look at verse 22. That's where I left off last time. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now your translation may say forgiveness. It may say there's no remission of sin. Right? In other words, the, the word remission, as I said last time, is a good word. Because it actually means to send away. It is 
all, all the blood of the Old Testament, all those sacrifices that were offered was only typical, was only pointing to the one great sacrifice in Jesus Christ where he would shed his blood. In other words, Jesus couldn't have died in any other way but by the way in, in the manner in which he died. It's, it's the blood unto death that saves us. He had to not only bleed in his suffering because he represented all the sufferings of the Old Testament and how the animal had to be killed and its blood shed and then for a, someone to have a, sins remitted or sins sent away. But in Jesus Christ, he, of course, remits our sin. He takes care of our guilt. He takes our just punishment And the reason for that is that this sin, guilt, and just punishment sticks so frightfully close to sinners. We can't get away from it. There's nothing we can do and nowhere place, no place we can run from it. It is only the holy and precious and all-sufficient blood of Jesus Christ that the sins of his children could forever be wiped away. So it's this remitting of sin this remission of their penalty uh, that God takes care of in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So this bloodshedding is almost, with respect to heaven, as, as, as well as respect to earth, uh, because on the earthly tabernacle and its sacrificial system, with all the blood uh, that was offered, it was just copies, typical of all the pointing to the original sanctuary, uh, to the far better blood that is Christ himself. So, uh, you see, blood is necessary. In the Old Covenant, for the Old Covenant to be put into force, and blood is also necessary for the New Covenant to be put into force. In both covenants, sacrificial blood shedding is necessary. So, without the shedding of blood, there's just no salvation. There's no way to approach God. There's no way to come into his presence. There's no way for God to send away your sin. And, and so it never comes up against you again. There's no way for that. But there is a vast difference between the blood of sacrificial animals and the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. His blood was better, it says in Scripture. Now, why was it better? It was the blood of the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophesied one. It was the blood of the innocent lamb. Jesus didn't die because he was a sinner. He was innocent. So he is the sinless one. It is the blood that only needed to be shed once. So he is the unrepeatable one. And then it is the blood that was original of all the copies. So he is, of course, if there's a copy, well, it assumes there's an original, right? And if we have all these copies that have been given to us in Scripture about where it was pointing, all these signs pointing, then Jesus Christ is the original. And he's come to us. He's come to earth. Right? And he's come to do what? He's come to make sure that our salvation is complete, that nothing needs to be added to it. There's nothing else that needs to be done at all whatsoever. But, of course, you need to know that you are a believer, that you are a Christian, that you have come and called on the name of the Lord to be saved. Uh, it doesn't just happen to you in the sense that you sit there just because you're sitting in church that all of a sudden you get saved or something like that. It, but when you hear the word of God and God begins, 
begins to convict you of your own sin, and you begin to realize, wait a minute, I'm the guy that the Scripture's talking about. I'm under God's judgment. I need to be rescued from that. The only way you're going to be rescued is by the blood of Christ, by His sacrifice. Because somebody has to pay for your sin and all the offenses you and I committed against God. It's either going to be you forever in the lake of fire, or it's going to be Christ on the cross. See, when you come to Christ, then your whole position before God changes. And God wants us to know that. He wants us to know it now. He doesn't want us to wait, like people think, till death and then I'll find out. No, 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 no. You don't want to wait to then. It's too late then. Then God's other part of his program is instituted at that point. And these are the things that he kind of takes up in this section of Scripture. So today I want you to see how necessary Christ's sacrifice is and how it is superior to secure the salvation of all his children. And of course, for us reading it, he wants us to know that too. So there's three simple points that I want to make today. The first one is simply this, that Christ's sacrifice was necessary and superior because... It purified everything. It purified everything. It made everything clean before God. Everything clean before God. Look at verse 23 and 4. It says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better would better sacrifices than these. And then verse 24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. In other words, why the necessity of the blood here? Well, the answer by now should be obvious. It is sin. The defilement of sin must be removed And the only thing that can possibly remove the defilement of your sin and my sin, which causes the defilement in the first place, is the sacrificial blood. And the only one who could remove that defilement for eternally and permanently is the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the point that he's making here. The entire cleansing power of sacrifice lie in the blood. The washing away, the sending away of the covering of forever of our sin. So, as was said already, God, when he looks at you, doesn't see you in your sin. He sees Christ and his blood and the sacrifice offered on your behalf. So, Because these sacrifices serve sinners, then both the earthly and the heavenly tabernacles require the necessity of sacrificial blood. Now, the earthly tabernacle, like it says in verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He didn't enter the earthly tabernacle or the temple that was represented all through the ages, but those were just mere copies of the true one. But it says here that the earthly tabernacle, the copy made with hands, 
needed to be cleansed. Why? Because sinful hands made it. Sinful hands ministered in it. And so therefore, it needed to be cleansed. The heavenly tabernacle, the original, that was given to Moses, was not made with hands. It did not need to be cleansed in the sense the Old Testament needed to be cleansed. The tabernacle needed to be cleansed. What needed to be cleansed are those who would enter in to the heavenly tabernacle later on. Sinners needed to be cleansed in order to enter into God's presence. That's the whole thought here. You need to be made clean to enter into the presence of a holy and a just and a righteous God. Because he cannot let you in unless you have this sacrifice, unless you are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, in the handmade tabernacle, the priest entered, remember, once a year, year after year, to offer blood to cover sin for a year period. The high priest went into the presence of God, and he was the only one allowed to go into the presence of God in that man-made sanctuary, but he did not go into heaven. He could not go into heaven because he was a sinner. He needed to be cleansed himself. He He needed an offering himself. But if you notice in our verse, in verse 24, that on the other hand, Christ enters into the true hagias, the true holy place, where it says, and the last part of verse 24, and that no mere man can go into the original sanctuary on his own for he has no way to get in. He can't get in. He needs someone to take him there. He needs someone to cleanse him so he can enter there. So Hebrews calls the genuine original sanctuary in verse number 24, heaven. He enters into heaven itself, it says in verse 24. And that becomes very important for you and I because... You see, this is where Jesus appeared after his atoning sacrifice. And his earthly ministry was finished here on this earth. Where did he go? He appeared in heaven. And he appeared where? Face to face with God. Prosepone. Face to face. Nose to nose. Eyeball to eyeball in the sense. He, he was able, what high priest was able to do that? No one was able to do that. So Jesus goes there. And you would think if we stopped there that possibly went there for himself. But if you look at our text, I'm leaving something out, that Jesus was not there for himself. If you look again, he was face to face with the Father. He says, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He went there and Jesus is there on our behalf, on, the, on behalf of all those who would be cleansed by his blood and made clean. He goes and blazes a trail. In fact, if you remember back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, uh, if you'd like to turn there, this is what it says, that Jesus was a forerunner. He uses the word forerunner, and it says he was a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that a forerunner, remember, is someone who runs before. It was especially used of soldiers, which were which were sent to explore before an army would advance. They would go explore and make ready the territory, give all the reconnaissance to make sure the army can come in somewhat in a position where they know what they're getting into, where Jesus Christ takes care of every. He does all the reconnaissance for us. 
He does everything for us, so we don't even have to be concerned about it. He's, he has blazed his way into the presence of God, and he's done it for, on our behalf. He's done it with all our names in mind, to those who come and know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He's, he does it for us. So, brethren, that's the love of Christ. That's the doctrine of the love of Christ, that he has entered heaven and finished, and is finished with the work of redemption. That through Jesus, we are washed from our sin. Our lives have been muddied and stained by sin, yet dead sinners have no way to remove that stain. The sinner is unclean, polluted, and full of the filth of sin. It is Jesus that has the power to cleanse you, to make you ready and prepared to enter into God's presence and stay there forever do we consider that does that change your life if you consider those things these particular doctrines as it says in the book of acts now why do you delay get up and be baptized and wash away your sins doesn't mean there that baptism washes away sins you got it, what proceeds there is the sacrifice of christ that washes away the sins and the baptism is an identification of you believing that and making it public for, before those who uh, are going to hear the testimony of what changed in your life. And then it says, calling on his name. So the finished work of Christ, now that we're cleansed, gives us access to God. That's it. That's, that's his point, that Christ's atoning sacrifice brings worshipers, purged worshipers that are purged to God. Now, he expands that a little bit more. Look over to chapter 10, verse 2, where he says this, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, that's the sacrifices, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, there's that word again, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. In other words, once you realize the blood of Jesus Christ makes you clean, then the, the whole sense of the guilt that comes and the consciousness of sins that comes and the condemnation that comes with that is gone. Because I realized in Christ, he takes care of every single sin I ever committed, whether it was intentional or unintentional. He takes care of every one of them. Word, action, deed, thought, he takes care of it all. There's no way that you and I could ever identify every sin we ever committed. It's impossible to do. So you come in your great sin of unbelief and rejection of Christ, and he forgives you all the rest of it. Past, present, and future sin that you'll commit is all under the blood of Christ. He takes care of it all, brethren. And so look at chapter 10, verse 22. Again, he says, this is where he begins the, the they call the lettuce bowl of Scripture. Lettuce bowl of Scripture? Look at verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brethren, you are the person with the evil conscience. Whether you looked at yourself like that or not, God sees you like that. He sees us like that, that I'm the one with the evil conscience. Why? My conscience riddled with guilt. Even though I try to suppress that truth, I put it down, I move it aside, I do other things to replace it, I'm still guilty before God. So are you. 
But here he's sending, listen, hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and then bodies washed pure. Meaning, God, the point is this, that God purifies everything. Spiritual and physical. He purifies things that have anything to do with us or preventing us getting to God's presence. Having access to God, he takes care of everything. That the Christ sacrifice is necessary for your salvation. And entry into heaven. Because he completely purifies you so you can remain in the presence of God. Now, who could, who could do that? What, what person can offer that? Nobody can offer that. Except Jesus Christ. That means Christianity is exclusive. Christ is exclusive. There, there's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to enter into the presence of God. The same God who created the heaven and the earth. There's no way to get there at all whatsoever. Here's a second point in Hebrews chapter 9, that Christ's sacrifice was necessary and superior because it finished everything. It not only purified everything, it finished everything. Look at verse number 25. It says, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. And let me just stop there. In other words, that Jesus Christ takes care of everything that he put away sin. He put away sin for you and I. In verse number 26, he says, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has manifested to put away sin. So here, why did he finish everything? What is part of him finishing everything? To put away sin. How does he do that? By means of the sacrifice. And the point here is the unrepeatable event. He is finished unlike the high priests who were never finished. They had, a, as soon as they were done, they had to get ready for the next sacrifice and the next sacrifice and the next sacrifice. So see, theirs was a very repetitious work day after day, month after month, and then Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement after Day of Atonement, year after year. But Christ, at the fullness of time, the consummation of the eons, the ages, Christ comes to earth, and what does he do? He finishes it. He comes as the high priest, and he's done. One sacrifice, that's it. So that is where Jesus is so different than the Jewish high priest. For it was not necessary, it will never be necessary, for Christ to suffer again and again doesn't have to do that he was able to get the real cleansing and expiation of the sin complete one try one time and nothing else needs to be done so that is what he's going to be he has been saying that over and over again he's going to be saying it over and over again so we get it through our mind and don't forget this was a jewish audience he was writing through and the sacrificial system was still in place so he's driving home to them. Listen, you're going to go out there and you're going to see those high priest sacrificed animals for sin. But I'm saying to you, listen, that's done out there. Christ has done it once. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? He's done it once. Depend on Christ alone for your salvation and not the old religious system. That's done. Just let me be a little bit redundant for a minute. Uh, Jesus does not need to leave and re-enter heaven often. 
Jesus does not need to shed His blood often. Jesus does not need to die often. Jesus does not need to offer the sacrifice of Himself often. Jesus does not need to come into this world as a man often. He said really the same thing five times to point out how absurd it would be to make Christ do what the Scriptures over and over said He did once for all, and that is the, to die. So any kind of form of some re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ, whether it be real or symbolic, is totally against Scripture. We need to get in our mind, no, that's not what we ought to be thinking about. What we ought to think, be thinking about is what the Bible says about the sacrifice being finished. Jesus, remember, by his, his necessary and superior sacrifices, not only purifies everything, but finishes everything. It's, it, the repetition is done. Our, our religion is not a religion of repetition. It's not a relationship of repetition. It's a relationship with Christ in which it is done. Now fellowship can go on. Look at ch- chapters, go back to chapter 7 for a minute and look at verse 27. Because again, he said it back there in verse 27. He says, what does, uh, what does, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Then look over to chapter 10 of Hebrews and get verse um, 10, which I'm getting there in the weeks to come. And it says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So everywhere you look, this is being... Yes, this is being repeated so we don't repeat the sacrifice again or think in our mind that Jesus Christ somehow didn't finish it all and he's like the Old Testament priest that has to go back and maybe something was not completely taken care of. But no, that's not what it says here. It says that Christ's sacrifice is necessary for your salvation because it finished everything needed to give you entryway into the presence of God and keep you there, did everything. And then the last thing I want you to consider in Hebrews 9, verse 26, is that Christ's sacrifice was necessary and superior because it consummated everything. Now, this is a very interesting point that he makes here uh, in this passage of Scripture because if you look at verse number 26, Notice what he says in verse number 26 of Hebrews 9. He says, otherwise he would have needed to offer, to suffer once, off, often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Very interesting term here, a significant phrase he uses here, because it gives us a time frame. Once at the consummation of the ages. The eons is the Greek word for ages there. You have to ask when you're doing Bible study, what does this mean? You know what it means? It means that all the past ages of the world, all of world history, have come to their joint goal to which God intended them to come in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That means everything was pointing in history to him. 
the consummation of the ages. It all comes together in Christ. All of world history comes together in Christ. In fact, in his first appearing, and we're talking about here the first appearing of Jesus Christ, where Hebrews has used that term several times already. In his first appearing, in verse number 26 that I just read, what does he come to do in his first appearing? It says there, to take away sin. He he has been manifest. He has been made to appear. In in the ESV, I think it may be appear there. He has been made to appear, what? The first time as a man who comes into the world. For what reason? Why does Christ come into the world? Well, he gives the reason here. To put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. That's how he does it. So the consummation of the ages has always pointed to this one final lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who dies in the place of sinners to put away your sin forever by his own death on the cross. And what does he do after that, according to Hebrews? He appears in heaven. What does he do there? Face to face with the Father. Who does he go there for? For us who believe in Christ, who have their sins washed away by the blood of Christ. And then what does he do while he's there? He prepares for the second advent. John 14 says, I go and I prepare a place for you, right? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and get you. So Jesus right now, while we're considering the consummation of the ages where everything comes together in the sacrifice, in the first advent, in the first coming of Christ, and that Included in the first coming of Christ is Jesus sitting right now at the right hand of the Father. And he's what is he doing? He's preparing for his second advent. Yes, Jesus is coming again for you who have never heard that. He's coming again. All right. So in between the first and the second coming, we still experience the effects of sin. Because we're born into a world that will eventually go the way of death, right? I mean, the reality of is is it you, you and I are going to die. Unless Christ comes while we're alive, we're going to die. No one looks forward to that day, but obviously in this point in Scripture, he wanted to remind the people about this, not only the oneness of Christ dying, but the oneness of us dying, right? Because the oneness of us dying does bring a next event that does happen in the Word of God. And if you look at your own Bibles, and if you see in verse number 27, it says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, it is appointed for men to die once. I say sometimes to people, what do you, you know, I think the best thing that proves Scripture, that Scripture is true, is that we all die. Right? Death has come into the world, and because death has come into the world and sin has come in with us, it's brought forth death. So we die. Why do we die? It's part of the judgment of God because of sin, right? That's why we die. Yeah, people die of heart attacks and cancer and all those kind of things, but that's not the reason why you die. Those are the things that bring about your death. But here it is saying, listen, once again, it is highlighted by the fact that it is reserved for people to die once. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, that Christ 
died once like men, but not because of his sin. No, because of your sin and my sin. But see, one thing that Jesus Christ did on the cross, he defeated death. He rose triumphantly over death and over the grave. He defeated our greatest enemy at the cross. So this becomes a great incentive now to say, wait a minute, I die. Christ died. But in my death, what do I face next? What do you face next in your death? See, we, you, what you need to think about is, is what awaits you at your death. Because the second part of Hebrews chapter 7, or 27, verse, uh, in, in this verse, it tells of, the, of the, lever, the leveler greater than physical death. People say, well, hey, listen, the greatest enemy a person has is death. But the greatest leveler after physical death, what is it? Look at verse 27. And as much as appointing for men to die once and after, this comes what? Judgment. See, God's verdict in Scripture is either acquittal, which gives you entryway and access to God, or it is his verdict is condemnation, which is hell, right? Separation from God, always been separated from God because of sin, but now here's permanent separation, eternal separation from God. Never getting a second chance after death. There's no second chances after death. See, it's in this life that God begins to speak to us and talks to us and convinces us that we need Christ and we need to be, believe him by faith and come and ask him to save us. And when he does save us, we learn to live for him. And remember, there's no purgatory at all in Scripture. That was just man-made doctrine. There's no purgatory. There's no limbos. There's no second place where you go and get your sins burned off and then get to heaven finally. No, there's no, nothing like that in Scripture. Scripture's pretty clear. It's, it's the broad way or it's the narrow way, right? It's light or darkness. It's heaven or hell. There's no in-between when you come to stuff like that. But yet we all think in terms of, of that, I think God could be so merciful that even after death, he may give somebody a second chance. But if you look at the Scripture here, there's no seconds in the Scripture. For those who have been brought forward and bought literally by the blood of Christ, the throne of judgment has been changed to a throne of mercy. But for those who have not and do not come to Christ after they die are ushered to the throne of judgment with no mercy, only justice. Because a just God has to hold a person responsible for their sin. His justice was poured out on Christ for anybody who came to Christ and satisfied there, right? But if you do not have Christ, then God's justice still must be satisfied. That's why there is a place called hell. And hell is many things, but the separation that it brings to those who do not know Christ and the horror and the torment and the terror that comes with those who don't Christ, they end up in that place. Because why? God is just. He's a just judge. He sees things clearly. He judges accurately. He must judge that way because of who he is as God revealed in Scripture, holy and righteous. 
He cannot let people go. He can't do it. That's why the great plan of salvation in the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where you get rescued from God's justice. That's where you get rescued from eternal damnation at Jesus, at the cross of Jesus Christ. So you know what? I, I urge you, wherever you're at today, don't put this particular thing off. This is some of the most serious stuff that you'll ever think about. See, most are concerned with the physical part of death. They are only concerned about the mode of death, you know, how someone actually is going to die, whether it's old age or cancer or heart attack or car crash or a plane crash or war or some kind of disease or AIDS, inf- infections, malaria, pneumonia, whatever it, it may be. See, people are interested in the inconsequential things and remain ignorant about the vital issue that and people are, aren't really very interested in that vital issue at death and the vital issue is that death is a spiritual thing what you think about God in your life when it comes to death is so important so see the, you should be thinking about how you will die you should be ready for dying. So I'm too young for that, Pastor. I got my life to live. I, I can't be thinking about those kind of things. I got responsibilities. I got other things to think about. But see, the thing is that, that that's, that's thinking that I've engaged in, and so have you engaged in that kind of thinking. But see, the, the question is, death is no respecter of, of age or color or creed. Death takes babies as well as old people. It takes babies as well as teenagers. I've buried, buried them all. I've been, I've been in the ministry long enough to have buried infants, teenagers, the middle of the road, older people, and very, very old people. And you know what? Death didn't come knocking at the door and say, listen, you, you want a little bit more time? I'll give you a little bit more time. No, it doesn't do that. It just comes, swoops down, and before you know it, person is gone and there the pastor is or the minister sharing the gospel with people who are you know i don't know if you've ever been to funerals and see people's faces it's like deadpan faces you know and you're wondering if you're getting through but you just go and hurl the gospel to them and and pray that god would use it to show them that listen death is a wise thing to think about funerals are a good place to be because it, it brings you to reality. So do you, do you know what you think about the topic of, of death is a matter of wisdom? Or it's a matter of folly? Only fools live lives of pleasure, denying and ignoring the reality of death at every point. But the wise live every day aware of the reality of death. And why is that? Because Jesus said in the Gospels there's only two ways... Uh, that you can die. What are those two ways? Either you're going to die in the Lord or you're going to die in your sin, right? Those are the only two places you can do, die. So, See, the thing is that you have to ask yourself, how am I going to die? When it comes that day, am I going to die in my sin because I, I ignored, rejected, did not think about uh the implications of Jesus Christ in this matter, and that he's the one who can rescue me from it because he defeated it 
And in his defeat, I am a victor? See, or are you going to just die in your sin? Hey, I like living my life. I like the pleasure. I, don't, I think that Christianity, that's going to just cramp my style. I don't, I don't want anything like that. But at the same time, you have to come to this conclusion. Everyone dies. That means you. That means me. This is true of all of us, and we can't evade it. You will keep your appointment, I often say, and you will not be late. And the other side is unknown. I don't know what's on the other side as far as the, you know, apart from what the Scripture tells me. But Scripture tells me enough to know what's on the other side, right? I do know this. I know the person on the other side, Jesus Christ. And if he's my Lord and Savior, then he's got me covered. Right? But remember, it's not just a profession of faith. It is my everyday following and desiring and loving and growing in the Lord that is part of salvation. So you see, so just as the Scripture says, listen, you got one shot at dying. You'll die once, it says there. One shot. How about dying well? Let's die well. Let's die knowing where we're going. Let's die proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ that, listen, I'm dying in Christ. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm dying in Christ who took care of my sin, who purified me, who finished it all so I can blaze that trail right behind Christ into the presence of God and stay there. That's the way to die. Don't die with guilt and grudges and hatred and not knowing what's going to happen, and hopefully you're thinking when someone's dying that on the other side, God's, you know, there's a great light, and, and I feel warm, and you hear all those stories. That's a bunch of hogwash. I'm, I'm not saying that people don't experience those things they do. But if Satan's going to create those things and bring people to a place where they're depending on that and trusting in that and not in the person and work of Jesus Christ, they're going to be greatly deceived. They're going to be in a warm place for sure. It's going to be a place where they're going to be separated from Christ from all eternity. See, all, everybody needs to seriously consider the consequences of the way they die. And I love what it says in Scripture. Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So there's the key. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he is the resurrection of the life, then he's the one who rescues. See, that the way you die has everything to do with how you respond to Jesus as to whether you have believed in him or not. This very thing will alter the way in which you die. Let me ask you a question. Do you consider things in that light? Do you wake up in the morning saying, I could die today? I know psychologists will tell you, listen, that's not a good way to think. You shouldn't be thinking about those things. You should be thinking happy thoughts, good thoughts. You know? But you know what the Scripture says? When you wake up tomorrow, ask yourself, how am I going to die? When am I going to die? Am I ready to die? 
because it is going to happen. And if you are ready, what you think about God is going to matter at that. But if it matters all through your life, then death is, death is going to take on the picture of you dying in Christ. So most, though, have not considered the fact that death is a supremely spiritual matter and that this question of Jesus Christ will be the most important issue there when one dies. Because the Bible says after death is what? Judgment. Who's the judge? Jesus, right? So, see, the point in Scripture being made is that if Christ is my Savior and Lord and my sacrifice here, he will not be my judge there. If he is not your Lord and Savior here and has not purified you and finished everything on your behalf to give you access to God, he will be your judge there. And you cannot get away from that. So either you will meet Jesus Christ here or you will meet him there. But he will be the most important person on your mind at death. See, these are sobering thoughts, but so much needed for the health and well-being of believers and the church. We would be much more serious about life if we considered every day our death. And it would not be a morbid thing to do so. It would be a healthy, spiritual thing because you will be ready every day and you will watch the way you live. You will watch the way you think. Because you love the Lord and you don't want to offend him. You don't want to do something that displeases your father, but you want to do things that show that you love your father. So here's the real issue. And failure that most do not think about their death in the right way. And I think of a failure to realize the spiritual part of death that the condition of a person's soul is the most important matter at one's death. You know, it's, it's really, when, when you go and do a funeral somewhere and you don't know the person, and somehow the funeral director calls me and says, listen, I need you to come down here and do this funeral, and I go there, I don't have any idea who this person is. I can't preach them into heaven, right? But I can't preach them into hell either. So I forget about him and I just give him the gospel. That's what I usually do. I say, yeah, anybody here give a eulogy on this person so they can at least get a sense of who he was? And I can get a sense of who he was. But, see, so people don't really get ready for death in that way to realize the condition of their soul is the most important matter at death. So, so how will you die? So here's the most important thing for God's ch- children to grasp. You can know God's verdict right now. It is wise to ponder your death, and if you get one chance to die, well, don't be foolish, do it well. Know that you're going to die in the Lord and not in your sin. Men don't die again and again, they die once. Know where you're going and know what your verdict is now. This brings me to the last thing that 
we want to consider in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 28, the point that the reader is making now about the second coming of Jesus Christ. All that is the first coming. Here's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 28 in Hebrews chapter 9. It says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Will appear a second time. So Jesus Christ is now sitting right out at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has done all this work on our behalf, and he's waiting to come again. He's waiting for the second part of his program. He died once in verse number 28. For what reason? Here's the main purpose, to bear the sins of many. So Christ also having offered once to bear the sins of many, his once and for all death accomplished everything necessary to obtain eternal ransoming. He bore the entire penalty of our guilt. He achieved the... eternal putting away of sin and defilement and made us clean to enter into the presence of God and he makes an obstacle-free way into God's presence. All the, all the obstacles, all the hurdles are removed in Christ. Through the cross, I go into God's presence. But look at verse number, put your eyeballs on the last part of verse number 28. And will appear a second time, but notice what it says, for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him so he will appear a second time but what is the difference from the first coming the second coming and the second purpose which he lists here is the purposes jesus is coming for salvation now what does that mean well what it means is qualify this by the second part, without reference to sin. In in other words, not in reference to shedding blood, not in reference to sacrificial death as a substitute for sinners, or fulfilling all the shadows and types. Again, all these have reference to sin. That's finished. That's done with. No. He will appear a second time to fulfill His new covenant promise. And what is that? To come and get us. To finish our salvation. To take us. Remember the chain that all he foreknew, he predestined. And all he predestined, he called. And all he called, he justified. And all he justified, he, what? Glorified. He's going to finish that chain of salvation. That's what he's doing the second time he comes, he is going to finish you know, salvation and complete it totally. But what's interesting about this passage of Scripture, look at the last part. He is coming to those who are expecting him. Wait a minute. Those who eagerly await him. So here's a person, trusts in Jesus Christ, knows they're cleansed by the blood of Christ, has determined how they're going to die in Christ and not in sin, and what are they doing while they're, while they're waiting? They're eagerly awaiting for the coming of their Lord and their Savior. And they're eagerly doing it. In other words, I believe that's part of the new covenant. Remember when it says that I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And in other words, God will give us the desire to 
eagerly await him because we can't wait to get into his presence and drop off these sinful bodies and get out of the sinful environment and get into God's presence finally. Now, it doesn't mean you just sit on a mountain and sell everything and sit on a mountain or a telephone pole like people have done in the past and, you know, just twiddle your thumbs. No, we're working until that time, right? We're working for the Lord until that time, but we're expecting him. Living every day, knowing you're going to die, but at the same time expecting your Lord to come. Why? He's defeated death. I'm not looking for death in saying, you stick my body in the grave and it decays and that's it, it's over, you know, hasta la vista, baby. No, I'm going into the presence of God. That's what I'm expecting. So when I die in Christ, I'm expecting to see Christ. That's what I'm, I'm expecting. I'm expecting to see him if he tarries, and I die before that, and I'm expecting to see him either way. I am expecting to see him, but I'm also living with expectancy. I'm living with that reality every single day, and that's what every believer should do. So, yes, Christ's sacrifice is necessary because it consummates all things. consummates all things that God could carry out until his intended goal. And what is that? Take your Bibles real quick and turn to Revelation chapter 2. This is, this is kind of the end of the story. But Revelation chapter, excuse me, did I say 2 or 22? See what chapter that I okay. Look at verse number chapter twenty one, verse three. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to what it says, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is the fulfillment of the new covenant right there. Everything is done, and now what do we have? We have each other in all eternity. But look at verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he says, Right. For these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. You know what that is? That's an invitation to come. That's an invitation. If God has caused in you a thirsting to want to come to him and be saved, then come. And you know what? It's not going to cost you a thing. God's not requiring and saying to you, come with your good deeds and your good works and, no, and your religiosity. No, come with all your sin and I will take care of it. That's what he's saying. And you're going to walk away in Christ, purified with the finished work of Christ, and looking forward and expecting Christ to come because he's consummated everything. So, see, you can't bypass 
or ignore the sacrifice of Christ. It is necessary for your eternal salvation and superior than any other thing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I thank you again for the word of God. I thank you, Lord, that you did not keep these things to yourself. You have not been silent concerning the most serious matters of life. And Lord, I I just pray and thank you, Lord, that we're able to listen to these things and see them with our own eyes in Scripture. But I pray, Lord, that it wouldn't just be a matter of seeing and hearing and being exposed to them, but it would be a matter of committing ourselves to them. I pray, Lord, that if someone doesn't know you this morning as their Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day they call upon you. I pray you would open their eyes to see. I ask you, Lord, that you would grant them faith and repentance. And I pray, Lord, that they would come and that you would become their Savior. You would become their substitute sacrifice. You, Lord Jesus, would take care of everything for them so they can have access to God. And Lord, for us who know those things and have considered death and how we're going to die and that we consider that we should die in the Lord, Lord, let us live each day with expectancy, being ready for your coming and living in the light of our Lord is coming back to get us that we're going to see you face to face. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal to us your first coming and its purpose and your second coming and its purpose. So, Lord, we're not in the dark about those things. But, Lord, I just pray you would bring it all together so we can live for you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.